overthinking it where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. This is the Overthinking It Book Club, and we are reading the comic book series Saga by Brian Vaughn and Fiona Staples. Uh, I am Ben Adams, your host. This is the sixth and final episode of this book club, and we'll be discussing chapters 16 through 18 of the series. Uh, we've been having a great discussion over these last six weeks. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, now, to, now to round the series out, uh, or at least the portion of the series we're reading out, uh, we have a, a great panel. Uh, first up, uh, hailing from Canada, Richard Rosenbaum. Hey, Richard. Hey, Ben. How's it going? I'm doing good. Uh, you've, you've, I think you've made it through uh, all the weeks. So uh, thanks yeah. for, uh, for your, your thoughts. Uh, yeah, it was fun. Happy, happy to have made it. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, next to him, we from Boston, we have uh, Ryan Sheely. Hey, Ryan. Hey, uh, good to be good to be here. I I do not have a perfect record. I'm not the um, Cal Ripken of uh, of of the book club podcast, but I'm always happy to be here. Glad, glad to have you. And next, uh, Matt Rather. Hey, Matt. I just uh, I I come on every podcast. It's like a fact of life, <laughs> right? Like uh, it's like Yo Yo Ma and the cello. Really, whenever a cello is played anywhere in the world, Yo Yo Ma is there, and so too with me in the podcasts. And, and we are happy to have you on, Matt. Uh, so I guess we'll uh, we'll launch as we've started all of these with uh, with, uh, with the new the new feature that I think has worked extremely well, which is the the panel of the panel, uh, where each of our our panelists picks out a a panel from the book that they uh, they thought summarized the themes or just that they thought captured a particular moment particularly well. So uh, Richard, what is your panel for the panel? Uh, well, first of all. Um my panels for the panels. This whole thing is the reason that I've that I've been so meticulous in in showing up every every week um, because I'm not used to being alphabetically first <laughs> anytime. This is so I'm I'm, I'm reluctant to let it go. Uh, but anyway, so my panel for the panel is um, in chapter sixteen when we've got the journalists. Um, you know, with their doing their confrontation, and they produce a photo, um, which they went to a great deal of trouble to acquire. An image pulled off the uh, surveillance camera back on Cleve, and it is a picture of Alana uh, taking some some clothes off a clothesline and looking very shady about it. And this seems. I, I don't know. Th- this this kind of arrested me because of how completely low tech this image is. So first of all, it's it's actually a piece of paper. You know, it's a printed photo. Um, it's clearly very not just low, not just a low res image. It's bl- it, you know, it's in black and white off of some kind of surveillance camera, um, but it's also the the quality of the printing is also really bad. You can look closely and see um, little pink and blue lines. And, um, and yeah, and, it definitely looks like a like a like an inkjet. Printer, yeah, it looks right? like an inkjet printer that's kind of running out of ink. And uh, and the fact is that it's a clothesline. It's not. She's not even taking it out of like a dryer or something. Uh, so there's just something about it that, and, and it's kind and it's just funny. It just seems like a funny image of her obviously not knowing that she was being, uh, photographed and 
doing something so seemingly inane or, or I don't know, domestic isn't the right word, but it's just something so low tech and something so kind of, uh, you know, quotidian as, as taking some, some laundry off a line. And it seemed like just uh, one of these little frozen moments that, again, you don't see this kind of thing in comics that often. And this, it's, it's another, you know, one panel that drives home, uh, in a way, you know, a lot of the themes that, that the comic is, is, is trying to, trying to go ahead with, like that, uh, uh, what do you call it? Undermining, uh, or subverting a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that's going on in, in a, an intergalactic war story, you know, hinges on on this black and white inkjet printed thing of this woman taking clothes off a line. So there's, I mean, there's another sense in which like the, the photograph is, it's being held up by the, and you know, forgive me, I never managed to learn their names, the blue faced uh, reporter alien, um, the, uh, that where it becomes, it almost fills up the whole panel of the, the thing. And, and it, it's an interesting commentary on the way, the way our lives become comics or the way like life becomes sequential art, because it's an image in a square frame. And even the photograph is kind of ringed by a little white border. Uh, in the way that the panels of saga are ringed by uh, are uh, you know surrounded by by white borders um, divided by them, and that that uh, the white border sort of in the two d medium divides it from the surrounding image uh, and it 's kind of like the way that that life becomes a comic or like at certain moments in life we 're called upon to read images in the way that you read a comic um, and and deal with the, deal with the significance uh, of them so there 's a nice meta moment there in addition to the um, in addition to the uh, uh, to the kind of dichotomy between the kind of the sublime and the ridiculous that you're you're um, talking about, Let, did you also notice how uh, entrances to apartment buildings on landfall uh, involve uh, like helipads? Involve yeah, they're on the roof. Yeah, exactly. And that rather than rather than like the garage, the first floor garage. I don't know if that's just a feature of of apartment buildings in LA, but there are a lot of buildings where the fir- where they're built up. The buildings are built up on. on on stilts or on you know concrete pylons or something, and that first floor is uh, the ground level is just a, a garage, is a carport for for parking in, and everything is um, uh, everything is uh, uh, you know the op- everything is up the second floor and higher. Uh, that then this is the this is the opposite of that because uh, when everyone has wings, um, you can you can fly and land. Though you wonder what Alana would do because apparently she's never say. flown before. You know? Right, there her her wings are ostensibly uh vestigial so yeah. you maybe got, it's a class thing you have to right exactly or maybe right yeah maybe there's a sort of a um linfolians with vestigial wings uh act you know <laughs> that they that they have to go isn't it always a class thing really <laughs> yeah in a way in a way <laughs> well in a way i think ryan Sheely's next in the alphabet so uh, ryan what is your uh, panel for the panel <laughs> 
Uh, mine is also in chapter 16, but it's at the very end. It's actually the penultimate panel in chapter 16. Um, and it's the one uh, that is, and it's also interestingly playing with uh, framing uh, and, and imagery, um, but it's a little different because it's the one that is uh, most of the panel is blacked out uh, and all that is revealed are two binocular holes, right? So it's Prince Robot the Fourth as seen through um, a binocular, and then on the tech, on the, on the blackout, the text is is, um, is, is uh, Hazel's narration say, so yeah, this piece of work goes on to brutally interrogate our host while my family is forced to cower in terrified silence. Um, and I really like this uh, for a lot of reasons. I mean, one is that there are several pl- places where the Hazel's narration is kind of pivoting between pieces of the story or connecting things. And I think this is a particularly elegant one because the next page reveals who is looking through those um, uh, binoculars, right? And it's Gwendolyn uh, with, with Lion Cat, right? And so that it's kind of, and that's the one where it get, you get to after that things got action packed. Uh, and so it's really cool how the binoculars are almost this like, funnel through which the action is being forced right and so that like the and because everything is being put through this like narrower aperture uh that that things it increases in intensity and pressure uh so i thought that was really cool i think there's a really cool echo I mean, we were talking a lot last week um about uh about the the camera eye and so there's a really cool echo um at least as i read this on the on the page the page opposite this in the panel exactly um opposite this one that kind of it folds over uh, or onto or not folds over onto, but is like the kind of parallel um, uh, on the preceding page is of um, of heist uh, and and a close up of there's someone coming this way um, and then then that's where Hazel's narration starts um, and so it's really interesting kind of this focus of eyes and the kind of one eye um, versus the two eyes um, and kind of monocularity uh, kind of juxtaposed with binocularity uh, and so I just think. There's there's a lot of um, cool things that are going on with framing uh, vision and and segues that are, are really summed up in this very cool um, panel. You know, I kept thinking that I, I would like to turn the turn the book upside down, and I read it on a computer screen, so that that wasn't necessarily possible because, like, the iPad helpfully uh, reorients the page every time you uh, every time you flip it 180 degrees. But with the you know the the Cyclopean monocular heist, uh, it it almost looks like you'd look you could look at his face either way right like whether Mm -hmm. the the upper or lower aperture uh is you know is superior or inferior kind of doesn't doesn't matter like it's it gets uh the meaning gets portrayed uh either way he's a he's sort of a a palindrome or uh he's he's tessellated around his nose a little (laughs) bit well, that's interesting how there's a tendency for the mind to kind of create some kind of balance or symmetry, right? And so the, if the symmetry of two eyes is not there, then you kind of, like, uh, expand outwards the frame of reference. And so it's on the whole face, and you find the balance on the eye and the mouth. Yeah. Um, that's that's really interesting, an interesting thing of just how we – and it goes back to kind of uh, what Richard was saying about kind of – what you guys were saying about how to read comics. And so the brain adapts, and right, it contextualizes by what's in the frame uh, – and then kind of processes in that way uh, what it means. And so I think that that's exactly right. Um, and and it's, this is just like an interesting play of the, uh, the cyclopticism and the, um, and the, and the binoculars. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the binocular view also plays a neat little kind of priming you for the dynamic splash panel on the next page 
because yeah. the fact of binocular vision tells us that there's now a third party. There are the people in the house, right. there's Prince Robot, and then there's this third, un- at first unknown group looking with binoculars. And we know it's not Heist looking through binoculars. <laughs> right, because it would be a telescope, <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> right. So it must yeah. be some third party. And then, of course, we get this cool shot on the next page of, uh, of Gwendolyn, you know, entering the scene. With Lion Cat. Um, with Lion Cat. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, Lion Cat should always be the other cop in a buddy cop. Like, it should be like 48 <laughs> yep. hours where it's Eddie Murphy and Lion Cat. <laughs> Poor Lion Cat, though. Lion Cat gets uh, gets really put through the ringer in this little, in this little stretch. Yeah. I, you know. We also yeah, get to see Lion Cat do a lot of action. He gets to take a lot of people out and does a, does a lot of uh, a lot more tackling. Yeah, this Lion Cat is not lying down. <laughs> with that, Matt Rather, save us from our puns. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go full Lion Cat with this one. Uh, you know, you never go the full Lion Cat. <laughs> hey, we're we're on our we're on. This is our last week. If you're ever gonna go full Lion Cat, it's, it's the time to do it. I like the I like the horrifying uh, Lion Cat family dynamics phantasmagoria. You know, mm-hmm. that's the. Uh, it's very nice. The the that um, that Isabel uh, visits upon Lion Cat uh, as you know. Uh, as Lion Cat gets um, what an eye poked out by uh, by Marco's mom, and the, and the uh, the whole the whole uh, thing about like um, Lion Cat doesn't say lying to to Lion Cat's mom, Aww. you know <laughs> that that like Lion Cat must believe that that this is true, and that like you know I don't know it's a good it's a it's a very sort of saga uh, saga. Ian insight that uh, you know the the you may be able to sort of summon up horrific visions of monsters, but the true monsters are within, right? The true monsters are the sort of insecurities or uh, um, the uh, you know the the sort of deeply held beliefs that 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 really terrify you more than any you know sort of uh, monstrous apparition ever could. I mean, it is interesting to c- contrast this with the hallucinations uh, from the parasitic uh, planet that we saw at the end of last of the chapters we were reading last week, uh, mm. and are still on at the beginning of this week because that's one where Lion Cat there, right when Gwendolyn uh, has ingested the poison and sees the naked unicorn woman uh, and says, you know, uh, lying, you know, Cat, I'm seeing before me the person that I, um, you know, I lost my virginity to, and Lion Cat goes lying. <laughs> <laughs> Right, and so it's like already yeah. these kinds of things like hallucinations um, test Lion Cat's powers, um, but this one's really interesting, right? Because this is also a an apparition or a, or a vision, um, but like you say, it doesn't trigger the lion response. And so it's it's a, the way, yeah. That's Go a ahead. good panel, also. I mean, it's a good, you know, the dominatrix yeah. unicorn yeah. is uh, is a uh, is it with with you know the pubic topiary uh, is is a good panel, um, and all like you get you get the sense that that uh, that a lot of these are chances I, I sort of wonder what the script looks like you know when it's when it's handed over right and it's just like I wonder if it's just like hey Fiona do your thing because there are a number number of kind of bravura performances uh, in these full bleed splash panels that uh, like the stalk was one um, yeah. or rather the stalk kind of rearing up and revealing her spider legs uh, 
and undercarriage, right, was one. And and also, I think she was packing heat in each of her eight arms, uh, if I if if memory serves. And that was, uh, uh, you know, pretty good. And this is this is another one, the sort of Edenic, uh, sort of like the Dirty Eden um, one. And that's, I mean, it's interesting who everyone has has saw right has seen right like uh, Sophie, and we actually learned the origin of that name, I guess. This uh, uh, in this um, uh, set of chapters that we've read, but uh, uh, Sophie sl- Slave Girl, so formerly Slave Girl, the Sophie formerly known as Slave Girl, uh, <laughs> rather than the Sophie currently known as the brand, um, sees her mother, and uh, the Will sees the the stalk, and then and then on uh, you know Isabel kind of belongs to to the planet Cleave and can give give hallucinations, and and they're in a sense they defend the planet, right, or that they are a kind of retribution. They're a uh, uh, revenge of the planet on the people who've harmed it. And then on uh, Quietus, right, the bone bugs also create a kind of hallucination, right? Like the hallucination of autonomous life when it's in fact, you know, a colony of a colony of like uh, infesting insects working in, in unison to reanimate the skeletons of the, uh, of the creatures who have died there. So there, there is this sense like in which a lot of planets that we come across have uh, an immune system, right? Or have a defense mechanism where they can uh, they can um, induce in you something that is not technically real, but that either can smash you in the face, in the case of the bone bugs, or else um, can make you do things, in the case of the the visions, the hallucination ones, and uh, uh, kind of act on behalf of the planet to kind of perpetuate the planet's uh, uniqueness um, in the face of in the face of the war. And I wonder if that's a trope of, of, resi- of like radical resistance, right? Or... Um, or uh, what's going on in terms of the the larger meaning of that? Because it's a it's a, a, a technique that the the storytelling has returned to again and again. Also, by the way, uh, dominatrix unicorn tan lines. <laughs> I, I have a similar question about like what the the writing direction was because you certainly don't need any writing direction there. Like it's entirely un- like he could have just written. Put something cool here. It can be literally anything. And, you know, that would be fine for the plot. But it works so well that it, it says tells us some, it, a lot of interesting things about Gwendolyn without really being able to put your finger on it. Yeah. Uh, and I, I guess it's just me to, uh, to propose our last uh, panel for the panel here. Uh, so I'm going to go with a very sad panel, but uh, I think it's, uh, it's a good one to, to sum up kind of some of the themes of this area. And it's in chapter... Uh, 17, and it's the one where Gwendolyn is using the lance, and it shows the death of Heist with the lance through his one eye. And it's a very sad panel, uh, but I I like it because there's both a lot of action in this panel, like there's a lot going on, and there's also some some really interesting character work going on with the, the expression on Gwendolyn's face and the expression to some extent that we can see on Heist. Um, with the fire burning in the background, there's just there's a lot going on here to to appreciate in terms of theme. Um, I particularly like the the bend in the lance, the way it kind of goes away from him for a second and then comes right back. Yeah, uh, it's you know, and when you have it, 
um, the way there, there there's a there's a great little uh, kind of visual chiasmus, right? A little X shape uh, in the way that like uh, higher in the page, they're they're reversed because of the perspective of the panel of Heist and then Gwendolyn, and then uh, they're on opposite sides. Um, but the uh, the sort of the eyeline, Gwendolyn's eyeline anyway, is maintained in the uh, you know in the the panel and like the camera as it were the notional camera the point of view it stays on one side of the um on uh one side of the uh of the two characters this is the this is by the way the 180 degree rule that gets talked about in in sort of visual grammar of film sometimes where you draw a line between the two main subjects and the camera the perspective of the viewer always stays on one side of that line uh so that each uh uh, each character is always looking off frame in the same direction and helps orient you visually uh, when you're when you're evaluating images in sequence and here it works in you know sequential still drawings as well as it does in the um, uh, in moving pictures when that are cut together right and there's, there's also just something that the way it's set up with those two panels before of You've got the Mexican standoff, and then you don't know how it's going to resolve. You know that third panel, something is going to happen, but you don't know which one is going to fire. And at least the way kind of my eyes track the lance is you you kind of follow it down to see what's going to happen. Like, is it really going to hit him, and is it really going to kill him? Yeah. Uh, it, it, in a way that is pretty impressive to be able to do on, on a still page. And then, of course, his gun is down, telling you something important about his final moments. Right. Uh, and that he's, um, and then, and then a, a couple pages later, it's the, uh, the windows blue screen of death on, uh, Prince robot, the fourth right. face, which is a great, uh, great little detail. Nice little touch. Um, yeah. And, and also Gwendolyn is wearing the Will's cape this whole time. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed that, but, but the, she's kind of assumed the mantle of the freelancer, uh, though she's not freelancing. I mean, she is acting for, she says she's, uh, she's trying to help the man she loves, right? She's moved on as well. Um, Freelancing ain't free. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lansing. Is, yeah, neither is Lansing. And she is not a cold-blooded killer. Like, she is a killer here. But the expression on her face makes it clear that she is anything but cold-blooded in the in in this moment. Uh, yeah, that, she's not cold-blooded. We saw, you know, Dominatrix Unicorn before. No, <laughs> something something about the way she refers to it makes it sound like their their uh, relationship was uh, their relationship was troubled. Um, but, but yeah, it is it is interesting where like the last two lines of the chapter right are her dro- dropping the f bomb right her looking on at like what has happened uh, and kind of like realizing that she's kind of in over her head and or the things are I mean a little more action packed than she anticipated or ways in ways uh, at which that she uh, would not expected um, and and so that level of like bafflement and uncertainty i think is really interesting and that's 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 another thing that happens in the action scenes in this book a whole lot right like there is there is a school of thought that like under extreme circumstances people rise to the occasion and anyone who trains in in like martial arts or something will tell you no you don't rise to the occasion when you get into a fight you default to your most recent level of training right like you you default to like the skills that you've practiced uh the most recently right which is like why training is important uh and in Saga, it's not even that. It's a still further 
level of of sort of chance and randomness where like you you almost without knowing what's going on uh right act um impulsively and many people act impulsively at the same time right like the dice yeah. the dice are cast and then you kind of survey the results uh of yeah. that right so it's not a it's not a question of um of you know these are trained uh these are trained warriors right like who have skill at at being warriors uh who are doing their you know who are doing their skills it's not a question of like people in extraordinary circumstances like rising to the occasion it's it's a an example it's a a circumstance of like chance and randomness and just like dumb luck a lot of the time and then uh having to cope with the aftermath out of it and having to kind of make make a narrative out of it and kind of figure out what happened and where you go from here after uh after the poop has hit in the fan did I say hitting the fan? Uh, <laughs> that's, that, I don't know why I made a. Uh, I don't know why I made the past tense of it that way. But when the poop hits the fan, you know, you 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 stand there, uh, you know, with uh, Prince Robot rebooting at your feet, and you say you drop an f bomb. I mean, it is the opposite of war. The opposite of war bomb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which which brings us to our first topic. Well done, guys. I think it's the best segue of our. Now that we are six weeks in, we're finally we're finally nailing our segues. <laughs> Guys, we're, we're ready warmed to. Up. We're warmed up. Yeah, we're we're, we're ready up. to start. Right. We haven't been releasing. We haven't been releasing any of these. We're going <laughs> to start with issue nineteen. <laughs> so, what is the opposite of war? We're not allowed to say. I'm given to. I'm given to understand it's effing. This is very difficult for me. <laughs> <laughs> those warring teenagers. Right. Those. Uh, yeah. Exactly. These opposite of warring teenagers. Um, yeah, it, it is. And, and you know what is impressive about this to me? The sense that, like, uh, they had it planned for a while. Because I think that, like, um, as far back as, what was it, issue 10? Uh, with the, uh, you know, uh, with the, the when um, uh, Robot 4 is is mortally wounded and he's lying there on the, the field of battle before the mouse comes uh, to heal him. Um, the, the picture on his face, uh, we get a little more, uh, we actually get a, a, a big, you know, phantasmagoric uh, bravura performance from Fiona Staples in a, in a kind of more uh, completely realized um, bit uh, uh, image of that tableau that we only got a detail from um, he's obviously not a high def monitor right on his face he's obviously like a, a you know 640 by 480 cathode ray tube monitor but we get the full on uh, 4k version in in um, issue 17 where he uh, you see the kind of sextillion like uh, sextillion like um, you know, orgiastic scene with with all sorts of things that I don't even necessarily want to go into on this uh, on this podcast. But uh, but all manner of shenanigans and hanky panky uh, are are taking place in this uh, in this tableau here. And it's I mean it's interesting. It sort of does it, like there is a sense in which uh, there is a kind of visual opulence to Saga, right? There's a sense in which there is a kind of like whether it's like spider boobs or whether it's sextillion, right? 
right? There's a sense in which there's a kind of sensual pleasure, which is uh, one form of of gratification that that a comic can give uh, can give the reader, right? And and that like this this is sort of an extension of the opposite of war, right? This is the I effing, you know, that the comic book does to you when you read it, and that that sort of um, uh, marks it as as uh, but kind of participating in this, you know, orgiastic, voluptuous, sensuous, uh, kind of non non confrontational um, uh, discourse. Well, I, I think that I, I just I love this um, because it's it's teased a few times, right? Of people, kind of everyone uh, seeing or hearing the title of of Heist's new novel, The Opposite of War, be like, "Oh, it's another novel about peace," right? Mm-hmm. And so then, and it's cool because the, in this kind of almost Socratic dialogue with um, with with Prince Robot Four, um, he kind of teases it out, right? And he kind of it really is Socratic, right? He leads him along in this kind of line of questioning. Uh, and, and kind of probes these questions of, well, what did you see? Um, and then that leads uh, Prince Robot to the realization that the opposite of war is effing, right? And I love the two panels where it's like yeah, you have blank screen, and then when he has the epiphany or he has the understanding, it's a, a blooming flower, right, uh, on his uh, on his screen. Um, and I think I love that because I think there's a line earlier before which is really cool and I think ties together a lot of the themes of the book is that um, – Robot uh, 4 says, we may not have been making love, but we certainly were making something, or we were certainly making something. Um, and that, and I feel like that actually weirdly, I mean, that idea of making something, it weirdly fits with kind of what um, what Matt was just talking about, also about the kind of almost random acts under a fog of war. Uh, and so there's also a fog of horniness, right? <laughs> and and they're the, the not quite knowing, right? I mean, and 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 it kind of thinks about the the chapters start earlier on, um, where Marco and Alana are kind of talking about, um, you know, their the the unprotected sex that they had, right? Uh, and him um, and and him finishing inside her. Right. And and like these and you see these things that are playing out in similar ways. So on the one hand, the um, war and effing are opposites, but they also in this world are operating in kind of um, in in, uh, similar ways and kind of parallel ways, um, even though one is about kind of destroying um, and uh, the other is about making things. Well, yeah, I think that uh, that's one of the parallel themes running through the whole series so far, right? Is that it's about these two uh, Mm -hmm. lovers at, Mm -hmm. you know, during a war from opposite sides. Um, And it's really, but the the, the whole series is really not about the war and it's not so much about, you know, their love either, but it's about the consequences of the war and it's about the consequences of sex in particular, you know, their sex uh, and, you know, what happens, which is, you know, babies and things. Um, and similarly with Prince Robot, it's about his involvement in this war, um, but it's also about his becoming a father. And we have these very graphic uh, depictions of both war and sex, and also uh, the aftermath of war and the aftermath of sex. Like, we have m- multiple childbirth scenes um 
and and so on that that are really very kind of out of place seeming in uh in in this medium and also this genre because they're trying to make a point about the the connection between these these parallel uh yeah. events or these parallel yeah. you know streams that that happen constantly throughout the world no matter what one of they're both always happening <laughs> Do you feel like do, do you draw a circle around in your Venn diagram of the of kind of piecing out what's going on? Do you draw a circle around um, uh, Marco and Alana's lovemaking and the like the orgy scenes? Uh, right, like that's it's it's an interest it's an interesting thing whether like procreation sex is different somehow than like uh, orgiastic sex planet hooker planet sex, right? Like the the. Uh, the consequent the aims seem to be different, right? Like, uh, or the consequences seem to be different. And like, I would include in that like orgiastic sense the the you know final visions that people have um, on the battlefield, at least according to Saga, when you know they they uh, see all manner of all manner of explicit uh, material in their head, all manner of of R rated things that we wouldn't dare talk about on on uh, our podcast uh, in their head, right? Like it's it seems like the the consequences the consequences of of sex being children being procreation um you know is sort of different than the consequences of sextillion right huh i think you're right to correct you because you originally said the kind of the intent and i think you're right to focus on the consequences because we know that uh, alana and marco didn't exactly intend to have children it wasn't it wasn't intentional right. Right. sex right they wanted to be so, one way but it's the other way right exactly. like yeah <laughs> and, and so the, the the two acts are at least adjacent because the intent the intent of the, the parties and you know the orgy and the uh, alana and marco making love is at least something close together because it's the, the intent is you know pleasure but the consequences as you say are, are very very different yeah, and I mean, there was enough robot splooge flying around in Prince Robot's <laughs> vision that somebody could have gotten pregnant from that. <laughs> yeah. You never know. Is that okay? Is robot splooge okay under the R rating? <laughs> or under the, under the PG-13 that we're going for? I guess we'll find it. Because there's from a robo-dong, so... <laughs> we'll have to put some robot chili peppers. I guess, yeah. I guess we'll find out whether, um, whether anyone reports us on, on iTunes. I mean, who would be reading Saga yet also offended by me just <laughs> describing what is in the book? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's true. If we if we made sense, that would be. I mean, that would be very. Uh, well, pictures sensical. worth a thousand words. <laughs> okay. Yes, I will talk about Robo Dongs for a thousand words. Okay. Here we go. Uh, spe- uh, speaking of making things, it seems like there's a lot of talk about. Uh, I'm just going for it, guys. There's a lot of talk about uh, uh, creative careers, whether of novelists or the um, the sort of gradually uh, entering the discourse stuff about the circuit, which seems to be like an old style. Uh, old style like masked wrestling combined with soap operas uh or two for two with the segues in this podcast by uh, the way yeah really impressed with you or um good stuff or the the kind of the creative careers of journalism and not not just in the sense that these tabloid journalists are sort of creative with the facts though I, though honestly they, they are to a certain extent the the most honest people that we've seen in the entire um mm-hmm. 
story story so far, and actually that's what uh, gets them. That's what gets them in trouble because of the you know two sides, no sides uh, thing that the brand brings up when uh, when the brand darts them. Um, well, uh, it's, I think it, they're creative in the sense of again being the opposite of destructive. I think I think that that's much more the creative class that's being dealt with here is that it, that they're producing something other than you know either war or implements of war. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and that like, the, there's, you know, I, I don't know, it's maybe the opposite of war is writing, you know, uh, or acting or something like that. Or maybe they're all like, there's this, there's a sense in which these are all sort of generative activities, right? Like that do what you say, that make things that make new things, um, that leave the world, uh, built up ever so slightly more rather than torn down ever so slightly more when you, uh, when you're, when you're done with them. Or in may- maybe not even just the world, but maybe like something along the lines of the spirit, because, you know, there's lots of people in this world who make widgets, uh, you know, and that's generative in the sense that you're, 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 you're pushing back at the entropy of the universe. But because this universe is so consumed with war, pretty much anything material is ultimately going to get fed into that machine. So only these kind of ephemeral pursuits like the arts or journalism are not going to be fed into the maw of this, you know, seemingly all consuming war. Yeah. Well, it is interesting because all of these pieces of art, um, are, I mean, they're they're not all necessarily kind of outlawed or kind of viewed as seditious, but they all have that element, right? So the circuit is, um, what it's, it's, um, Alana says the circuit may be legal to watch, but it's still a pirate and a network run by crooks and carnies. Um, and, and then you have a sense, right? The way that, um, Robot 4, uh, treats heist is kind of as a kind of, uh, at some point as someone who is a, a, a radical or a pamphleteer. Um, and, and that's kind of mentioned a few times. Um, and that's kind of there also, right, in Gale kind of calling in the brand or ca- calling the uh, freelancer's uh, agent, uh, the what, the, the seahorse agent, right, uh, on uh, uh, on the journalists is, is indicating that these things in some ways, not only because they're not producing the war, but because they are generative in a way, right, in the opposite of war um, in, in a kind of way of, of at least on the on the effing side of things, on the generative and the creating side of things, that they are all actively threatening to war, right, and, and are kind of uh, forced to the margins for that way. And so it's interesting to think about when when you're in the war business um, and and kind of the whole – your whole economy, your whole polity is, is oriented towards war, then it's another view of – on, on kind of the connection between kind of war and a kind of authoritarianism and kind of lack of uh, of dissent and kind of of civil liberties. Well, let me let me throw onto this pile because I, I think one of the more interesting discussions here, and you know, I, I think it's worth discussing to the extent to which Saga is one of these stories, but where Heist described what makes a perfect children's story—that they all have the same sequence of you leave home, bad things happen because you break the rules, and then you come back learning why there's rules. And then really you learn that you should just break the rules because that's where all the fun is. And, and there's something to that in this series that by rule-breaking, you get this great adventure. Mm-hmm. Though it's Definitely. this book, this is pro- this, though it's a picture book, Saga is, as we've discussed, probably not a good children's book. 
Well, yeah, because I'm not sure it. I, I'm not sure it's on the side of adventure at no. all costs, right? Like that. The, the uh, like that is that is in the context of of a scene of kind of stultifying domestic life, which Hazel points out as such in her narration, right? Like the idea that. Um, uh, you know, the idea that the children's books are, you know, these kind of lawless escapes from, from rules are sort of lion, witch and wardrobe esque, right? Like you kind of go into the secret world where you're, you're free from the, the rules of your parents only works if you, you experience them, right? Like, uh, you experience them in the context of like a, a pleasant and, and maybe even to the point of being stultifying, uh, uh, safe domestic life. Right. Like, you know, who doesn't. Uh, yeah. You know, who doesn't need stories of adventure. Right. Like war refugees. <laughs> like this. Right. Exactly. Like this. Her, her life is a story of of uh, of adventure. And, I, and she's too young, you know, at this point to like really, really know what's going on. And, and though the point, though, the point might be true for, you know, most kind of, uh, most people growing up in, in developed economies these days, I, I am actually not sure that it's true in a time of, uh, I'm not sure that it's true in a time of actual, uh, warfare where, you know, your life is, is under threat at every moment. Yeah, well, well we in get that this. case, maybe this is the best children's story of all. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying we get this little snippet of Isabel's childhood that apparently hers was so rough that she learned the alphabet from a gorilla training manual. <laughs> so, like, I get, that's that's kind of the alternative to, to to these relatively safe adventurous children's stories is apparently just learning straight guerrilla warfare. Like, that's all you learn as a child. Right, when she, yeah. was, right, when she was growing up, uh, you know, setting off firecrackers in the woods and stuff like that, she was, like, blowing up the, the in military installations of the occupiers, right? She wasn't... Right. <laughs> right. And she's apparently you... a lot older than you'd think. Right, and you... Claire yeah. having the conversation, uh, a very adult kind of conversation. Uh, yeah. And okay. and Isabel, you know, implies that she's been been, you know, a ghost for quite a while now and has seen some stuff. It is interesting. I mean, and we get the sense that, you know, this kind of contextualizes Hazel's uh hard boiled uh narration throughout that, you know, she had more of that kind of childhood. Uh even though that she had children's books read to her, um and, and a literary upbringing, obviously, you know, the the Library and the whole lighthouse that that is inside all burned down, right? And that and they they t- kind of take to the road, and so you have a sense that she's having more of the guerrilla trading manual kind of education than the storybook education, right? You yeah, you sort of wonder. I mean, and this and by the way, like this is it's framed uh, not as a storybook, right? It's framed as like a personal narrative, either as like the. Uh, uh, you know, a development story, a personal development story, or else as, um, uh, you know, or else as a, like a memoir, uh, right? Like a, a, by personal development story, I mean like instructional, I mean like Bildungsroman, but, yeah. uh, or else as kind of a memoir, like, you know, my life among the rubble, my, you know, what happened right. during, during, during the war years. And so the, the, uh, this, this sort of picture book is framed, I mean, it's framed in a different way, right? Just totally. in, in terms of its, in terms of its ultimate meaning. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's right. 
I mean, I guess I, I think there's another thing in terms of thinking about the um, the the creative careers is I mean I don't know it's it's interesting to think about we haven't yet I think the circuit. I mean, I've I've not read beyond right. This is the first episode that I don't know what's coming up because I've not uh, gone beyond my um, my hardcover copy. So we've just started to see the circuit, but that there is also like is you know in addition to being kind of labeled as kind of outlaws or outsiders, these creative types are also I mean facing um, great peril right. And and that there's both the threat of death that faces the journalists, and then um, heist's actual fate right. That was um, you know one of our one of our panels of the week and i think that's real it's really interesting um to think about the narration that that uh, uh goes over that sequence right of gwendolyn busting in and kind of talking about this um you know the, this metaphor using the advice to kill your darlings uh right and and about uh about editing editing things down um about what they're most passionate about right and the text is why teach young writers to edit out whatever it is they feel most passionate about better to kill everything in their writing that they don't love as much until only the darlings remain and that's what's over the um uh over heist and so it's just interesting to think about i mean what i, I don't know if you, that struck any of you guys but i found i both found it immediately kind of poignant uh and 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 interesting without also t- totally unraveling uh, the meaning of it well do you it feel just... like there's a do you feel like there's a meta commentary there going uh like you know honestly in the end heist wasn't really one of yeah. our favorite characters yeah, and like definitely. we're okay <laughs> yeah. letting this guy yeah, go yeah, that's what i was driving towards i think that as i was i you know but it doesn't reveal itself immediately but as you kind of reread it and kind of see what's going on it, yeah there is kind of yeah they're, they're editing with the lance this time right right, uh, <laughs> right. The, the, the lance is mightier than the yeah. uh, and and especially i think <laughs> especially i think because gwendolyn here is trying to save one of our darlings basically right we care about the will a lot more than we care about heist and presumably so do the creators of the comic and so it's it's uh it's worth sacrificing heist uh if it means saving the will, both in in the story terms and in sort of meta meta fictional meta, like more meta storytelling terms but then so so but like let's let's delve into this a little bit because at the you know at the risk of you know overthinking it because kill your darlings is advice given to you know especially to writers um and there are there are a lot of versions of it and it's attributed to a lot of different people uh over the course of like writerly advice giving um I guess I'm I'm familiar with it uh, as a as a dictum of the Iowa Writers Workshop, the um, MFA program for fiction and nonfiction writers. But it it also like uh, is advice that seems to stretch back for time immemorial. That you like as you write poetry, like whenever you think you write, have written a particularly fine line, um, you know, uh, cut it out. And like there there are various rationales given for this, right? Like you kill everything that doesn't serve the main point of the story that you're trying to tell. You serve, uh, something that you like more for its intrinsics, for its own intrinsic benefits than for the instrumental benefits it has to the piece that you're writing in your project, uh, artistic or social or, or argumentative or whatever, uh, your project is with the piece that you're writing, right? Like, um, you cut it out because you're, you're, uh, 
uh, more interested in it, you become more interested. It becomes like a land of the lotus eaters thing, right? And you become more interested in kind of staying with with this thing uh, rather than rather than the thing. And like Saga uh, seems to obey this dictum, right? Like that that is to say, um, you know, uh, uh, seems to obey this dictum, right? It's it, we kill uh, all those those kind of phantasmagoria images, all those sort of uh, bravura performance splash panels that uh, are you know beautiful art and things like this. We sort of move on. Those aren't the places that that we live, right? In this uh, in this, we sort of live in the action and we live in the in the uh, kinetic movement of that lance from left to right across the frame. Uh, we we live in in kind of the plot of this, and it's it's relentless. It really it really sort of um, uh, it really sort of continues to move forward. I wouldn't call Saga sort of indulgent uh, as a, as a work of, of storytelling by any stretch of the imagination, right? I wouldn't call it uh, self involved. I wouldn't yeah. call it uh, any uh, you know kind of um, uh, uh, in love with itself, right? That would be pretentious, literally pretentious, right? Like pretending to tell a story while uh, while instead just kind of dilating upon a few beloved images or or uh, words or something something like that. And this is not, you know, this is, uh, this is not that. Yeah, I think, I mean, the dictum is about editing ruthlessly, right? It's about not holding on to things in a work of art just because you like it or just because you worked on it for a really, really long time. Um, not falling in love with anything that doesn't serve the work itself, rather than, you know, not not keeping something in there just because you like it, even though it may not be what's best for the work. Um, I think that Saga is using it slightly differently. Um, probably in, in a way it's like, Oh, you know, we were really worried a while ago when lion cat, uh, was blown out the spaceship and we're really worried about the will We're we're worried about these, characters but at the same time there there's the uh like there's the star trek cliche of right you've got the 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 party beams down you've got all the all the guys who are in the uh in in the credits and then you've got the random red shirt guy and it's like of course he's going to be the one who dies because you can't kill the names and this is almost a uh, a, a reaction to that kind of a criticism ahead of time in that, you know what, it's, maybe that's okay. Like we're, we don't have to be so ruthless, ruthlessly realistic like that anyone can die or anything can happen at any time because maybe that isn't what serves the story. Right. And maybe that isn't what serves the people who are creating the story. Maybe that doesn't make the story the most enjoyable to work on. I do one, think it. I mean, I just want one, one other way to read one, it. Oh, got it. Go ahead, Ben. One side to this uh, that because I when I read this, you know, because of the panel that is juxtaposed over, there's a feeling of kind of uh, inevitable tragedy to this idea of killing your darlings that the that there is a cost to this ruthless editing, that maybe it is the best practice when you're telling a story to, to ruthlessly edit down 
But when you do it, you're killing off your heist. You're killing off the stories that could be told with these characters. And that that may or may not be a good thing because because of what you lose. Like, you know, we had to get the Will and Sophie and Gwendolyn off Planet Paradise because that's what need is needed to serve the story. They can't, like, sit there in paradise and trip on, you know, fruit and looking at unicorn boobs for the rest of their lives because that wouldn't be that interesting of a story. But there's a cost to that. Like, the Will you know, almost dies and that, you know, all, there's all these, uh, you know, violence that results of that decision. And, and so I get the sense that there's, there's a tragedy to, to this editing practice. So speaking of tragedies, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, you know, once, uh, once, once Gwendolyn arrives and things start to get more action packed, uh, the, the tragedies start to really pile up and things start to move, uh, uh, at a real, uh, a tempo, right. And, and on the one hand, and we, we, time starts playing, uh, in a really interesting way. Once we especially really get into those, these, um, especially the last two chapters in this stretch that we're reading. Um, I mean, how did you guys kind of see the action packedness in the sequence and how it kind of relates to time and, and tempo? I mean, it's like, a, a, it's like, I don't know. It's like an episode of Downton Abbey or so, or a season of Downton Abbey, isn't it? Like we're all, you know, we're all patiently waiting for the things to happen. And then when they happen, they happen in about 90 seconds and then they're done. <laughs> and you're, I mean, the point that Hazel makes about, about time dilation, about how your perspective, um, can play fast and loose with time, uh, is, is interesting. And it's in the context here, it's, it's two separate points, right. That are, that are related, but distinct. And one is about how you choose to narrate something. And the other is about how you, you, uh, remember something. And one is, one is about intentionality and one is about kind of involuntary, uh, experience of time, right? Like the, the, the narrative can make us experience time in, in a certain way. And the narrative arts like, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, novels or, or comics or films or things like this can draw out certain moments and like there are certain techniques to do that and there are, there are reasons that you would do that to establish a rhythm to build tension and and uh, and so on but but you do get the sense that with this they're sort of clearing the decks right for uh, for the next chapter there's there's sort of like right. ever since I mean has it been six has it been six issues that they've been waiting at. Uh, uh, that they've that we've been waiting for this at at heists did did volume two of the trade paperback or uh uh issue 12 end with them sort of crouched uh crouched in the the upstairs hallway um while uh while robot is there like this this yeah. has been a long this whole arc uh right has been kind of a long uh way around the barn back to where we were um Back to where we were initially, and though we're not sure how much time had had passed, what uh, I think the 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 caption, if if uh, I remember correctly, I think the caption is. Um We'd already been there for over a week, so this is like a, this is a lot of plot to squeeze into a week. I guess travel right. time travel time plus a week. Uh, you don't really see them covering the vast interstellar distances really in any sci-fi, because except maybe like uh, two thousand one: A Space Odyssey and dealing with the like the the long nothing. Actually, speaking of experience of time, right, and really drawing out <laughs> experience of time: two thousand one: A Space Odyssey. But the um, you know. Uh, 
Yeah, but the, but that this this is like we're sort of we're sort of getting ready for for like for the next chapter of of Hazel's life for like toddler Hazel and uh, and you know what what new adventures will will uh, will befall our. Uh, our heroes. So I, I don't know. I, I sort of look at it. I look at it not as tragic. I look at it as kind of throat clearing a little yeah. bit. Uh, well, that t- does, though, relate to, I think, in some ways, what we were talking about with kind of killing the darlings. So like, let's clear the deck. Like, yeah, these are great characters and, and there's a lot of stuff active. But you have, I mean, there's even going to be more coming down the road. Like, this is just the first part of the saga. And I kind of see this, right? It's, it's there in Hazel's narration uh in the very end of the of the last chapter here um right where uh it's kind of the like the credit sequence montage right <laughs> uh where the where are they now montage you know i, I want to like cue up the don't you forget about me <laughs> while it while it plays <laughs> uh, right it's like we are just a freelancer and uh, and and another freelancer and a family <laughs> and an author and we are the saga club um no but uh, <laughs> Uh, but like you know, it says it would be a very long time before we saw any of our original pursuers again. At least it seemed kind of long, right? And then this is going over a montage of the tree rocket ship. Um, but nothing warps time quite like childhood. I remember visits to faraway worlds that lasted only a few days, but that but felt like entire lifetimes. Uh, and then there were endless journeys between destinations that somehow went by in the blink of an eye. You know how it goes. And then the last uh, panel and the last splash panel is Hazel as a toddler, right, and walking. And so that's like I think that kind of pace that you get um, in that last sequence uh, kind of goes well in an interesting way with the things getting action pa- uh, packed uh, and and it playing this this transitional and throat clearing uh, role that Matt was pointing out. Yeah. Well, one other way that I think it, I agree it this this clears decks. One important way it does it narratively is in this last. Uh, couple chapters we get a whole bunch of different combinations we've had about a half dozen main characters bouncing all around the galaxy and most of them haven't gotten to interact with each other and now in these last scenes you get a whole bunch of different combinations you get prince robot and heist then you get prince robot and clara then you get clara you get heist and gwendolyn and clara and lion cat and etc etc you get all these different dyads bouncing off each other which which is actually very similar to downton where You'll have a scene which is Violet and Lord Grantham, and then Violet and Mary, and then Mary and Matthew, and they're they're all bouncing around, and that's how the plot advances by kind of chaining one one dyad onto the next, brings us from one plot point to the next. But it it serves us narratively because it also gives us a chance to see that dyad because we're probably not going to see these characters again anytime soon. So like, if you were really excited to see what was going to happen when Prince Robot fights clara like you get that in this scene to like to see how those characters interact before moving on and of course we get to see clara versus lion cat which is which is pretty great <laughs> poor lion cat poor lion yeah. cat's eye yeah hey an eye for an eye i guess so it's gonna be uh, he's gonna be side-eyeing cat now oh oh come on that was that was it that was that's my a material yeah, it wasn't even Lion Cat's idea to go in there. Like she says, you know, more or less says straight out that they don't have the right to go in there. Yeah, 
Uh, yeah, that is, I mean, that is interesting that there is some sort of sense of like, uh, there is some sort of sense of procedure or something, yeah. even on, even under these, these circumstances. And that this is that, like, we recognize that this is bad procedure and they probably shouldn't be doing it. Well, uh, and she says, she even says like, we don't have time to do this one by the book. Right. I mean, it's really full <laughs> bloody comedy, right? Like, Well, that is, I mean, that is interesting. I mean, there there is like a, a certain kind of hard boiled quality to some of Hazel's narration and to to some of the the um, um, the tone of what happens in the book and like yeah, life is cheap out here on Cleve. You know, <laughs> I said as I took a drag off my cigarette and looked through the bottom of the whiskey bottle lying on my table, and a dame walked in. Right, like there there is this sense of like of sort of uh, hard boiledness, world weary kind of detective, uh, uh, not not necessarily detective, but kind of genre fiction. Um, you know, hard boiled genre fiction. Uh, uh, sort of stuff here and and I, i'm not sure what we're especially when it comes in the form of hazel's narration i'm not totally sure in the end just kind of transitioning here to like an appraisal of of all uh 18 chapters that we've read and the the kind of the the scope and the project of the work as a whole i'm not sure exactly what we're supposed to think about that like it it's a little silly uh but i'm not sure it's supposed to be silly right i'm not sure that's that's exactly the point that that you know oh this is this is silly and ridiculous and and uh um you're meant to to sort of roll your your eyes at it a little bit. It's it's kind of like, well, are these in fact the sort of hard won musings of the you know of a girl who who was brought up under under such terrible conditions as as Hazel was, or or is there a kind of parody voice uh, going on here? I don't know. Am I making too much of it, or did you guys have have a similar set of reactions to it as I had? I mean, I think one way to read it, it's weird. Um, it, this dovetails with something that I noticed that I'm wondering if it's that the kind of pl- speaking in genre tropes or in kind of a, a, a slang of a particular kind of type of character kind of relates to just like ways in which trope and genre um, are shorthands for kind of knowing how they're kind of scripts for how to behave uh, in a given situation. And I think weirdly what cues me to that is there's an interesting like kind of playing with callbacks uh, and repeated phrases here. Uh, and there's two in chapter 17 that are really interesting that kind of maybe give a little bit of clue of for how cliche or, or genre trope uh, is at play here. Right. So one is when Clara comes in um, and says to Robot, uh, if you so, so much as uh, twitch a finger, I cube you. And uh, you get uh, uh, R- uh, Prince Robot co- cocking his head to the side and said, a Mooney speaking language. And that's like a, a callback to the very first altercation in the very first chapter, right? Uh, and, and so that this idea of like this being a thing that people say is a kind of a, a is, like it's both a little bit of a callback and an Easter egg for people who've been reading closely, but the idea that this is like, it's a it's kind of like an arrested development, right? And the, I've made a huge mistake. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and it kind of has this thing, you know, in arrested development, everyone's saying those kinds of things or um, her uh, for, <laughs> uh, for egg uh, is, uh, is, is is a way that uh, of how close knit the family is. I think because this gets repeated by people in much more disparate corners, it's much more like this is a um, a thing that people say. Um, and the other one that that kind of plays a similar role here um, 
is uh, is is um, Alana saying uh, because we have a family to think about now, right? And that that um, that kind of cliche is something that she railed against a lot uh, before, and then she kind of in this case kind of resigns to saying that. Um, but again, there's the idea that there are. Um, like memes and not not memes as in, in kind of internet memes, but like little discrete pieces of idea, right? In the kind of uh, like Richard Dawkins, in the, sense yeah, of in memes. the in the actual definition, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Meme. exactly <laughs> of of like idea of idea genes that are floating around um, that then kind of get used in different um, situations. So I kind of see that um, genre. Uh, that's one way to understand genre is that, you know, it's not that Gwendolyn is just like a noir character, but in this kind of um, context uh, that that is the, that's the, the, again, to use a kind of improv terminology, that's the game of that scene. Right. And so that in that context, that is the, the set of memes and the set of like uh, scripts that can be pulled on and drawn on. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I think that's uh Interesting. I, I mean, I think that's probably a, a lot of what's what's going on, um, and and it it does. I mean, it creates a, the the Arrested Development thing creates a sense of unity within a particular work. Like the interesting right. thing about like about genre memes is that they they create a sense of unity um, between different works. Right? right. That that like you know you're 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 inside a universe of stories if you're uh, if you're telling your stories in in this particular way and that that uh you know i don't know it does it does something to you i'm not sure if it's exactly a sort of uh uh undermining move uh in a way that a lot of a lot of the kind of artistic project of saga is to kind of undermine um glory of war stories right because it's uh sort of reminds me of something that that pete fenzel says a fair bit um about you know uh sort of silly uh will ferrell comedies that they are they are sort of uh they're they're farces masquerading as satires uh and and like did, did did anyone not know that that war was hell right like did anyone in the in the contemporary audience of saga not know right because this is because it's almost as though like the war is hell story is a kind of story that we're all very familiar with at this point and that it's uh you know, it's all, like almost telling a war is hell story is almost as hackneyed as telling a uh, uh, as telling a you know I don't know a nineteen forties Raymond Chandler detective novel story um, and and sure. so, yeah. I think Saga stakes out an interesting position because although it is a, it is a bit of a war is hell story, it attempts to dodge the you know the old chestnut about there being no anti-war you know books or, or stories because it makes war look so great by showing as little as possible of that war mm-hmm. that it's, it's attempting to tell a war story uh, almost uh, it's sort of a casablanca-ish war story in the sense that the entirety of the war happens off screen and it's not quite the same as of course in casablanca there there clearly is a good side and a bad side but it's similar in that it's a story with where the war is in the background and the main characters are just trying to just trying to get by in the shadow of that war. And maybe that's the way to show uh, the, the true horror of war, which is just how difficult it is to escape for your for your normal everyday likable people that, that we have in this story. 
Right. Well, it's like telling telling a war story outside of the war genre, right? Like we here we have uh, Gwendolyn, and she is kind of evoking these cliches uh, or tropes, if you want to be, you know, kinder. But she's she's playing outside of her natural genre, right? She's kind of filling in for the will while he's, you know, unable to to perform his his freelancing duties. But she isn't really comfortable with it, right? She goes against the rules, and she, uh, you know, convinces Lion Cat to go along with her. Um, and she seems to be doing things that, uh, in her natural genre, she wouldn't do. And also that someone who really was living in this genre wouldn't do, right? She's transgressing... Um, the, the, the kind of boundary between her natural genre and what she's been forced into doing because of the absence of the character who, who who's, uh, you know, natural habitat, that genre actually exists. But, Richard, there was one thing she didn't count on. She was never supposed to fall in love. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised that isn't a line of dialogue in Saga a it little bit. It might yet be. Hey, switching switching gears just a little bit. Um, uh, the the thing about about there being uh, no good side, and no bad side. Um, the, the the robots and the the planet right are clearly the bad guys. There's been a lot of talk about like oh the the horrors perpetrated by the the Moonies, but we don't see it uh, on the same level. And they seem to be like old style, uh, you know. Um, meet you on the field of battle, Greek champion, you know, Iliad style, uh, honor warriors rather than, you know, mechanized infantry, uh, kind of warriors like, uh, uh, like landfall seems to be, I, I don't know. Are there, uh, to me, it, it's just so clear to me that, that, uh, the moon are the good guys or they're the guys that we're supposed to favor. You uh, would say that. <laughs> I guess, I, but I, it seems to me that that's what I mean. And this is like my my third reading of of the story, and I've never felt this way before. But on on uh, on this one, it really does. Uh, that really does seem to be uh, the case to me. Um, I mean, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, we're not we're not really given a reason why their cause is particularly just, but certainly in the way the the two sides are characterized, the. The, the landfall, the, the planet is characterized as this, like, vaguely corporate, evil, you know, uh, totalitarian with all these vassal kingdoms like the robots and whatnot. And then, you're right, our only real image of Wreath is Marco's family, who are these, uh, and I'm, I'm going to quote uh, Major Dad, uh, <laughs> one of our, one, which is uh, where a reporter asks Major uh, asks him how he would characterize himself after he's already said like oh well, we're not really heroes or anything like that, and uh, he's asked how he would characterize himself and he just says warrior gods. <laughs> that's basically how uh, we're, we. That's basically how the, the magic people are characterized here, where they have this like deep connection to the land and they don't use this filthy technology. No, they just harness the elements and secrets and all the, these beautiful things that that's what they use to conduct their war. 
Uh, I, I actually have a different view from you guys. Uh, I actually I, I root for Landfall mostly because they have alligator butlers. Uh, <laughs> I mean, how can such a society be bad? And we actually get a little bit of a callback of that near the end as well, right, with the um, the alligator ladies' maids. Uh, so I guess alligators are the servant class, the domestic servant uh, class here. No, but I mean, I think joking aside, I think there is some, I mean, another way, I think you're right that um, you do feel more sympathetic for the for the moon um but i do think that uh that i think that one way in which um saga plays to the stories with no sides is that and um is that i think that even for the characters that are that feel like they are so more at the level of the narrative even characters that feel like they should be bad guys get humanized um and and are become people that you are are in some ways, either rooting for or at least sympathize with. Um, and I mean, I think the good examples of this is like, you know, that they, the will should be an antagonist here, right? That the will is pursuing the family is pursuing our protagonists. Uh, but for a variety, variety of the ways of how the will is, is, um, is, is written, uh, and, and fleshed out, uh, you, you kind of, um, really feel, I think po- generally feel strong, strongly and positively about the will. And even, I think there's like a lot of interesting things about, uh, Prince robot, the four, uh, the four, the fourth, uh, that, um, also at least, um, D D side him right a little bit uh and and so even if there are um in the conflict and in in kind of as you read uh some alignments i think that part of uh what the writing does is per provide um a more a more dynamic and more um more well-rounded view of these characters that makes it less kind of um less uh, less cut and dry uh and 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 removes some of the sides from the conflict a little bit I think that's right. I think that I noticed that particularly in the panel with Clara and Lion Cat, because it's this great head-to-head, eye-to-eye battle scene where we don't really want either one of them to win, or at least, mm. at the very least, we don't want either one of them to lose, because it's two characters that we like and identify with, and we don't really want... In fact, in most of these battle scenes, uh, we don't really want any of the characters to kill any of the others, because we've been so thoroughly identified with all the characters up to this point. So I think that is a good place to stop our, uh, our podcast. Nothing warps time quite like a book club podcast. Uh, so thank you to the panel. Uh, thank you to all our great commenters on the forums for a great book club. I've, I've really had a blast exploring this series. I've uh, never gotten into anything like this. And I think I'm probably definitely going to be uh, signing up for uh for more volumes of Saga. Uh, we are still deciding on our next title, but the book club will be back uh, with something else. So thank you, Matt. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Richard. Thank oh, you, it's very, yeah. very, uh, very good. And, and by the way, uh, I'll put affiliate links in for uh, volumes four uh, and five, the, which will be coming out soon of, uh, of Saga. So you can get... Um, through uh actually uh yeah four and five through issue 30 uh which uh are all the chapters extant uh now you'll be able to to get those with affiliate links and support overthinking it when you inevitably buy them as i know you will as will we all uh so thanks for doing that uh, and thanks for everyone who's bought saga through our links we appreciate it and uh we this will be our last podcast but uh we can of course open up uh, space on the forum for discussing 
discussing those volumes. If you want to keep talking about Saga with your uh, your favorite overthinkers, uh, if you want that or more, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinking.com, the place where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.